The next few minutes of WGTD's morning show are going to be tackling one of the most central and hotly discussed issues before the public today, that of free speech. And this is an issue that has been uh, before the American public before. In fact, our history is riddled with various controversies and disagreements over the extent of the free speech that we are granted by the U.S. Constitution. And of course, uh, battles over free speech are beginning to take on uh, new dimensions as uh, those disagreements are played out in different arenas and around different issues, some that have nothing directly to do with the words that come out of our mouth, but that in some way uh, seem to represent the importance of self-expression and our freedom uh, uh, to do the same. Uh, a new book uh, is uh, about to be shared with the public that explores much of this in really interesting fashion, the book titled, You Can't Always Say What You Want, The Paradox of Free Speech. It is written by uh, Dr. Dennis Barron, who is Emeritus Professor of English at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, uh, published uh, by Cambridge University Press. And it is a very thoughtful examination indeed of many of the issues that surround the complexity of free speech and the consequences of when we misunderstand the nature of or the extent of freedom of speech. And uh, I'm very honored to be able to speak with uh, Dennis Barron for the next few minutes about his fascinating book, You Can't Always Say What You Want. Professor Dennis Barron, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Hey, Greg. It is great to be here. We are recording this interview in uh, early December, and this is actually well before your book is to be released. Uh, this interview is going to be replayed uh, at the time that your book finally does hit bookshelf, uh, bookshelf, uh, bookstore shelves uh, around the country. One of the reasons why I was so anxious to talk with you now is because of the timeliness of this issue in, in the wake of some recent developments, including uh, all the controversy surrounding Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and some of the changes which he has made there, as, uh, as well as a case before the U.S. Supreme Court that also touches on some of the issues related to this. That being said... Uh, the issue of free speech is always timely, isn't it? And there's just about any month of the year where uh, this is something we should be talking about and thinking about. One of the things to, to keep in mind when we're talking about free speech and the First Amendment is that the First Amendment only applies to government, government control over people's speech. So uh, basically, it says in just about most in, in most cases, the government cannot interfere with your speech. It can't censor you in advance of your speech. It can't limit what you say. It can't steer you in particular directions. It can't make you say things that you don't want to say. But that's in most cases, and there are some exceptions. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, uh, Separate from that is the social media issue, that, uh, particularly what's going on uh, on Twitter right now with Elon Musk changing the parameters or saying he's changing the parameters of who can say what 
on that social media site. The government has very little to say about the speech that occurs in private corporations, and Twitter is one such private corporation. They are allowed to set their own rules about what you can and cannot say if you are a Twitter employee or if you are using the social media platform. They can examine your content, they can encourage your content, they can ban your content if they decide it uh, violates the terms of service. So the difference between free speech in the government and free speech in the private sector is a big one that the public tends to confuse. They're not quite the same. They have similar impact. Uh, we can say whatever we want in many situations, but we are never exempt in any situation from the consequences of saying what we want. So I, I can say something on Twitter, and Elon Musk can just let it, let it sit up there on the platform. But if you find it offensive, you can block me, you can complain uh, to me, you can complain to Twitter, you can, and this is the worst thing for any writer, you can ignore what I say. <laughs> there is a lot wrapped up in what you just uh, spelled out, and we will circle back to it in, in just a little bit. Another current issue, uh, as we are recording this issue right now, is a case before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, that involves uh, a plaintiff who is a website designer who seeks protection based on the First Amendment in terms of not having to take on as clients same-sex couples. In other words, she does not want to have to uh, be compelled to create websites, personal websites, for same-sex couples even though my understanding is she has never been asked to do so, but wants protection yeah. against that being, in a sense, thrust upon her. And she sees that as a First Amendment right in, in the same way that, uh, that, that others have in, in, in other arenas. Can you just say a word about that expanse of the notion of freedom of speech to involve things other than what we most simply think of as our speech, as the words that come out of our mouths sure. or that we type onto a page. Sure. What what um, what the case involves is uh, the issue of compelled speech. So the First Amendment, as, as I mentioned before, not only says you can say what you want, but we can't. But but you can't be forced to say things you don't want. Okay. And what the uh, website designer in this case is, is claiming is that she would like to design wedding websites. She's not done this before. She designs websites, but she'd like to go into the area of uh, websites for weddings. And you probably, uh, if you know someone who's getting married, been married recently, uh, a lot of this is online now. The, the all the information about the wedding and the, the, the where to get the gifts and uh, what the events will be and things like that and, and the pictures and all, all that's online now. And she'd like to get into this business, but she does not want to have to design websites for same-sex couples. 
She'll do anything else in terms of web design for same-sex clients, but not, not wedding sites, because she claims that it is her deeply held religious belief that uh, marriage is uh, confined to heterosexual couples. Uh, and the issue is that her her resistance to to do, doing these same sex wedding websites is uh, that it contravenes the um, anti discrimination laws of the state, and uh, which says that if you open a business to the general public, you have to serve that public. Uh, you can't make exceptions for based on race or religion or, uh, in, in this case, gender uh, or gender orientation. And so we have a, a, a case where the First Amendment seems to clash with um, anti-discrimination law. And this is, this is going to be an issue uh, for a while, it looks like. Uh, People who want to claim, I can't serve you in my business because of who you are. Because who you are violates my deeply held belief uh, that you can't be who you are. Uh, this is, sounds kind of bizarre when you put it like that, but uh, I, I, I won't sell to you. I'll sell to this other person uh, and so on. So during oral arguments in the case, which, which uh, took place last week, one of the justices asked, well, how is this different from a restaurant owner who says, I won't serve you if you are African-American in my restaurant, but I will serve you uh, out the back window of the restaurant. You can, you can come to the back window and get, get takeaway uh, food, but, you, but you're not allowed in the restaurant. You can't order from the main counter. You have to go to the back window. And the Supreme Court had ruled in that case that that, that is a violation of human rights legislation. And uh, so what the website designer is saying, this is different because they're asking me to speak when I design a website. And if I design the website, it looks like I am supporting same-sex marriage and you can't make me do that. And that's the, that's the question that, that the courts will have to wrestle with. And it's a tricky question. Right, because in, in in one sense you 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 want to support anti-discrimination laws, but in the other sense, what about uh, a a client who is whose whose words that they want you to put on a cake, which was a previous case, or in this case in a, on a website, you find those words so reprehensible that you. Uh, you, it would be a violation of, of your conscience, you claim, to do that. Uh, I mean, what do you, where do you think the court's going to go on this? It's a very conservative court now, and uh, there is a chance that they will... The, the argument, by the way, is not religious... Uh, the religious freedom aspect of the First Amendment. It's, a, it's the compelled speech aspect of the First Amendment. So the court has upheld people's religious rights, but uh, it has not come down on the um, 
the compelled speech side uh, of this particular question. Uh, at least at the time that uh, that we are recording this interview. And my understanding is that whether or not they rule uh, in favor of, of this particular plaintiff, and my understanding is that it, it is quite likely that that it, that they will in fact rule favorably, but that much much remains in terms of how that decision is framed, and if it is framed in a way that is very strictly restricted to this particular matter, this particular instance, versus something that is, in a sense, open for more loose application to other arenas and other endeavors. Uh, that is the question. And, of course, uh, the possibility is that this could have far-reaching ramifications uh, uh, in all kinds of areas of, of, of public life. Right. It, 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 it could open the door to anybody saying, I, I don't want to serve <clears throat> this, this client because, you know, they're very... If I have to even say hello to the client, that's compelled speech. Uh, it sounds pretty bizarre. But um, the court has not been very, very um, friendly toward human rights legislation in in the last few years as it trends more conservatively. So it's, it's a scary prospect that... Um, free speech could negate uh, human rights, a lot of aspects, language-related aspects of human rights legislation. In the oral arguments, they tried to make clear that we're talking about words, not actions. Hmm. Because the action of turning away a client could be illegal, but uh, the client saying, I want you to write these words on the website... Uh, the question too is who's speaking when you read a wedding website? Who's speaking in the in the in the previous case when um, you're dealing with the an inscription on a cake? Is that the baker? Is that the website designer speaking? Hmm. Or is it the customer? Right, because and, and it, you know uh, I I would argue that it's that it's the customer. Right. That that. A baker, by putting that frosting inscription on the top of a cake that says, Greg loves Steve, uh, does not mean that the baker thinks that Greg loves Steve or that Greg should love Steve in the, in the way that we're talking about. Uh, what you're suggesting is that is the, that is the uh, feeling of, of the couple or the loved ones who are honoring that, that couple. Right, right. I mean, is Take the, the, the reasonable person interpretation, right? But somebody comes along, sees a wedding cake, uh, congratulations, Chuck and Steve, uh, uh, on your wedding. And uh, are they going to say, woo, that, that's some progressive baker you got there? Or are they going to say, oh, yeah. Yeah, I I was invited to that wedding, or oh, I I I knew Steve in high school, or uh, you know they're they're going to identify the words as being relevant to the to the couple, not to the manufacturer of the cake. 
Intriguing questions. For those of you uh, just joining us, I'm speaking with Dennis Barron, Emeritus Professor of English at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and the author of a book called You Can Always Say What You Want, The Paradox of Free Speech. Uh, This is a book in which uh, Professor Barron explores, uh, as much as anything, the history of how we as a nation have wrestled with the matter of free speech, how it is laid out in our Constitution, how those words have been understood through the course of our our country's history. And uh, he certainly touches on matters of free speech as they have played out uh, in other places uh, as well. Uh, Professor Barron, one thing that's really interesting towards the very top of the book is when you spell out uh, the specific areas that you that you uh, explore in this book, and a couple of areas in which you don't. And I think you choose not to explore some of these other things, not because they aren't important, but because there's just only so much time, and maybe there are other reasons too. But your book explores free speech as it relates to political speech, obscenity, to threats, to official language, and to something we've already talked about, compelled speech. You do not tackle the issues of defamation and blasphemy. Could you just say a quick word about uh, the way in which, or the reasons why those last two matters uh, do not find their way into your book, at least not in the direct way that these other matters do? Okay, so um, when when you write a book, there's only so much room. You know, you, we like to think, well, the the internet is infinite, and uh, my hard disk can hold two terabytes of data. I can write as much as I want to. And uh, then you have the issue of the publisher saying, oh, yeah, uh, 120,000 words tops, and that includes the index. And so you have to pick and choose uh, which are the topics that are most important to you to cover and that you think would be most interesting for the reader. The reason I don't go into defamation is because defamation in the U.S. is much different in the U.K. Uh, in, in the U.S., def, uh, defamation laws are uh, state by state. They differ from state by state. Defamation has traditionally been something that's very difficult to prove. In a court of law, there are all kinds of questions about, did you know this was true? Did you know this was false? Uh, are you trying to cause harm to the individual, or is it an honest mistake? Uh, all those kinds of complex issues. Most of the readers of the book will not probably have, have come face-to-face with defamation defamation issues, it's almost like a tongue twister, will not have come face-to-face with defamation issues uh, personally. Well, they will have come face-to-face with things like threats, trying to figure out what's obscene, what can you say about politics around the Thanksgiving dinner table, which has become a big issue since, oh, let's say 2016. Uh, and so I tried to try to deal with some of the issues that that may be more pertinent to to uh, 
those who will be reading the book. Uh, should English be an official language? Uh, to what extent can we control the, the actual language that, that people are speaking? Uh, when are words just too obscene to be allowed? And to what extent uh, should we uh, limit uh, th that kind of language? I don't talk about blasphemy because although it was a big issue in the 18th century, there are many anti-blasphemy laws in the, in the different states at the time. It's not a big issue in the U.S. today, although in other places around the world it is. And since my focus was largely on the U.S. and uh, similar examples from uh, Europe and England and other sort of liberal democracies around the world, I didn't want to get into the whole blasphemy issue because I just don't know enough about it and it would require a lot of information about what goes on in other countries. Hmm. Where defamation is actually, you know, something that can be punished by death. One of the central matters in your book, and we've certainly talked about this already, is the matter of the First Amendment right to free speech not in fact being absolute. The one way you say it in the book is both the First and Second Amendments are framed as absolutes, but in fact are contingent. My first question okay. is, uh, is this your understanding, or, uh, or are there uh, people out there, uh, intelligent people, who would actually say, actually, no, uh, the First and Second Amendments are in fact absolute rights, and we should not be okay. messing with them, or is that, or is the way you are uh, approaching that, uh, by and large, the way that uh, that these amendments are widely understood? Uh, they are widely understood legally by the courts historically to be contingent rather than absolute. Uh, uh, First Amendment. First Amendment begins, Congress shall make no law and uh, abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Uh, but in fact, it means Congress may make some laws doing exactly that. Uh, the Second Amendment says uh, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, but in fact, all sorts of controls on who can have weapons in what kinds of situations uh, are perfectly legal and constitutional. Yes, there are free speech absolutists, there are Second Amendment absolutists, but legal judgments don't support those positions. And in fact, I mean, my argument is you scratch a First Amendment absolutist and You've got uh, somebody who's interested in protecting their own speech, but silencing you. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is uh, something we've seen more than once, for sure. I was really intrigued when, uh, uh, earlier in your book, you make mention of, of a saying that I'm sure just about a lot of us, uh, just about all of us have heard at one point or another. This point, uh, it, it make, in making the point that, free speech is not absolute, that no one has the right to stand up in a theater and sh falsely shout fire and, and, and in a sense, in, incite a widespread panic, 
that you just can't do that. The Constitution does not protect your right to do something like that. I had no idea that that statement went all the way back to 1919, nor did I know that it was uttered by one Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, I guess I thought that was something that just some ordinary commentator had said to try to explain this, but actually that that was stated uh, on the bench of the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, it is a very much an official pronouncement. And what do you see as its intrinsic value to us in understanding this better? Okay, so so I mean that is the that is the classic example. It's from Schenck versus United States, and in, in the first First Amendment case that the Supreme Court actually decided, and it was a case about um, protesting U.S. involvement in World War One, and Charles Schenck was Secretary of the uh, Socialist Party, and sent out. Uh, flyers to draft eligible men, uh, urging them to assert their own constitutional right not to be conscripted, not, not you know, to resist the draft, to refuse to go to war. And he was convicted of violating the um, Espionage Act of 1917. Uh, by interfering with the war effort. The uh, case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court upheld his conviction. And in uh, the majority opinion written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, he uses that example. He says, you know, the First Amendment is framed as an absolute, but no one has the right to uh, falsely shout fire in a crowded theater and cause a panic. Uh, certainly, if there is a fire, you are allowed to alert the patrons to that. And uh, there were uh, it was a, a poignant example at the time because there had been a number of serious incidents where there were fires in crowded theaters and the audience panicked and many people died uh, being crushed in the exits. Exits were often chained shut and... Uh, it was a terrible sort of situation. So, and that's the case where there's a real fire. And if there's a fake fire and and you cause a stampede, that's you know ten times worse, basically. And that is definitely illegal. Uh, first exempt. First Amendment does not exempt you from being punished for doing something like that. So, and and, and then there are all other sorts of exceptions to uh, speech that is considered outside the bounds. Of the First Amendment, uh, threats, obscenity, and uh, certain kinds of uh, compelled speech are outside the protection of the First Amendment. They're unprotected speech. And the other issue is, you know, what can you say on social media? And that's the big issue that is, is going on today. In 1917, 1918, it was war protesters. Today, if you protested a war, that would be perfectly fine. Okay, so the example of how our attitude toward what kind of speech is allowed and not allowed. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, during times of war, there are certain things you can't say that you could say during times of peace. But I think uh, since the 1960s, courts have ruled that more and more 
political speech, legitimately protesting a war, let's say, or something equivalent, as long as it is not accompanied by violence or illegal activity, that speech is permitted, Hmm. protected. Your book does take up the matter of what occurred in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and the speech given uh, on the uh, the grounds of of the White House shortly uh, before uh, all of those protesters stormed uh, stormed the U.S. Capitol building uh, in that uh, horrifying, uh, horrifying spectacle. And uh, I appreciate the care with which you tackle this, this, this uh, incident and, and the free speech matters that are wrapped up in it. Namely, uh, what exactly did President Trump say on January 6th in that speech did he have the right to say what he said? And what did that those words cause? And is he to be held responsible for, in a sense, how people acted on the words that he said? Um, let's begin by just asking you uh, how you think people tend to misunderstand this this series of of questions what are the ways in which we misunderstand this or maybe unduly simplify what is uh, a, a complicated matter okay so i mean the, the, to, to 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 put it you know probably oversimplification uh trump says something and Afterwards, there is a violent reaction uh, to it that involves illegal activity on the part of a crowd. The question then is, did Trump's words incite the violence that followed? Typically, over the course of its its, uh, First Amendment rulings, the Supreme Court has carved out a kind of test for the situation. And that's basically if there is what the court has called imminent lawless action following the words. Imminent means happening right away. Then that is not speech that's protected by the First Amendment. That's incitement to riot. If there is time between the uttering of the words and any violent action that could be predicted from the words to stop that action from occurring, either by talking to people and saying, no, don't do that, that that would violate the law, or by, you know, setting up an armed blockade so that they couldn't get in, so that a crowd could not attack a building that they were trying to attack. If there was some way to prevent the violence between the uttering of the, of the words and the occurrence of the violence, then that's not imminent lawless action, and then that that could be protected speech. But it seems that on January 6th, things were happening pretty fast and furious, and the words and the actions were pretty much close together, and the actions were clearly illegal, and the words suggested 
the actions many of the people in the crowd claimed that they felt they were acting on the orders of the president. So that could fit a pretty classic definition of incitement. Uh, Fortunately, I'm not a lawyer, and uh, even more fortunately, I'm not a judge, so I don't have to rule on this. I can have my own opinion, but I'm saying if it looks like a duck, etc., etc. One of the lines of defense for former President Trump is that uh, although he called on those supporters gathered there to uh, march to the Capitol, uh, he did not say in so many words that once they get there, they should do what, in fact, they did. Uh, I mean, that okay. is, he did not yeah. specifically uh, call for the say, actions that, that occurred. Right. He didn't, he, he didn't uh, specifically say that, but he used the word fight in his, uh, in his remarks. You have to fight for this. You have to fight for that more than, I think, more than 20 times. Somebody did a word count of it. And um, what does that mean? He claims he meant it metaphorically. Uh, the crowd, many people in the crowd took it literally as a, as a direction. Go fight. And they did. So uh, that's, that's my... I, I think that's a thin argument. It's a disingenuous argument. Right. Your book not only explores that matter, but also explores the the dramatic protests that occurred in Charlottesville, Virginia. And uh, you frame this as a, a situation that involved both a combination of and a clash between the First and Second Amendments, the right of free speech and the right of, of self-defense when protesters uh, came upon Charlottesville, Virginia, and many of them brandishing weapons. And in, in talking about what occurred in Charlottesville, you at one point draw a very sharp contrast between it and what was in some respects a similar kind of demonstration that occurred in Skokie, Illinois, back in 1978 involving pro-Nazi demonstrators uh, but there were important distinctions between those two events that you thought were worth highlighting. Uh, explain the contrast between those two events and and the importance of that distinction when it comes to understanding and preserving the most fundamental kinds of free speech. Okay, so what, what, what both... Uh the Nazi march in Skokie in 78 and the white supremacist march in Charlottesville in 20, uh, was it 2017, were, uh, were framed as free speech rallies, uh, free speech for white people. And uh, the key difference that I experienced is that in 78 in Skokie and even if even today uh, in Illinois uh, the public carrying of weapons is not legal but in Virginia today uh, during the Charlottesville protests or Charlottesville riots uh, open carry of weapons is permitted 
And so what you had in Charlottesville was a clash between armed protesters, uh, white armed white supremacists protesting the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee from a park that used to be named Robert E. Lee Park, but was renamed Emancipation Park. They came armed. The, they were encouraged to bring weapons with them. Uh, the, uh, those who opposed the protest typically did not carry weapons, and what happens in a case of the sort of clash between the First and Second Amendment is that an armed speaker tends to silence a speaker who is not armed. When the First and Second Amendments clash, the guns tend to win. And uh, there, there was an article in the, in the uh, I think it was the New York Times a week or so ago, tracking the increased presence of guns at protests, at polling places, uh, at, at uh, political, political uh, demonstrations or election uh, speeches, and noting the increased potential for violence that, that these guns, uh, the presence of these guns uh, presents, and the impact on the speech of the unarmed who, who tend, you, you're not going to typically say something if somebody's holding a gun uh, and looking at you threateningly, you're not going to say something to make them even angrier. Uh, you see armed protesters standing around a polling place, you will be discouraged from going in and exercising your political right to vote. So the, the, the tends to involve speech suppression. It's not a self-defense issue at all. That's just a pretext uh, you don't bring a gun to a demonstration because you're afraid that somebody's going to attack you. You bring a gun to a demonstration to uh, get other people to do what you want. Hmm. It uh, That sounds like uh, an interesting line from your book in which you say, no one owns the First Amendment. And I think what you're right. suggesting there is that uh, the First Amendment is grossly misused when a given group of people uh, brandish it for their own purposes, but to the detriment of someone else's freedoms. That it is a misuse right. of the First Amendment to think of it in that selective fashion. Right. The courts look at the First Amendment as viewpoint neutral. In other words, it doesn't support any particular political or other kind of viewpoint. It supports all viewpoints. And so any any legislation that seeks to privilege one viewpoint and not another one at the expense of another one could run afoul of the First Amendment. Hmm. Before we run out of time, I want to be sure to ask you about the intriguing subtitle of your book, the, the main title is You Can Always Say What You Want, and we should say on the cover of the book, all those words are crossed out. <laughs> I, I, I love that design. Mm -hmm. So you can always say what you want. And then the subtitle is The Paradox of Free Speech. 
That's a really right. intriguing use of words. What is the paradox that we are talking about tied up in the matter of free speech? The paradox basically is this. Everybody's got free speech. We can say whatever we want to about anything we want to whomever we want, except that there are always consequences to speech. And so we limit what we say. We all have filters. You know, we're, we're, we're not the person sitting on the bus talking out loud. We're not the person standing on the street corner shouting about the end of the world. Most of us have filters so that when we are in a particular social group, we know what we can say and we know what we can avoid, what we should avoid saying. We have the right to say these taboo things, but we tend to self-censor. And there, and if we don't self-censor, there are social pressures that will be applied to to us to get us to censor. In the future, we can be punished for saying what we whatever we want. We can be ostracized. We can be you put a put a quarter in the swear jar if you uh, say those words. Uh, we can be ousted from the group. We can be fired from our job. We can be sued for defamation. We can be, as I said earlier, ignored. Hmm. How about when it comes to uh, the matter of those infamous protesters from Westboro Baptist Church who make a point Ah. of showing up at uh, all kinds of funerals, protesting uh, in one way or another uh, around the issue of gays and the fact that gays are going to hell and anyone that thinks gay is okay is also going to hell and so on. But this would seem to be one of those instances in which even somebody who defends at its heart the notion of free speech, even when it uh, causes discomfort, it's these kind of cases where I think that discomfort rises to a level that becomes very difficult to defend. Oh, to- totally, totally. It's, it, it, it's an awful thing that they, that they had, had been doing, and I don't know if they're still at it, uh, but they are required to observe all of the legal restrictions. In other words, you can't get too close to the actual funeral. Uh, in some cases, you can't be visible to the, to the attendees at the funeral. But you have the right to to protest on public ground for uh, whatever cause you are you are advocating. Uh, this is a question of exceptionally bad taste, and it doesn't free them from being yelled at, from being uh, uh, harassed by by counter protesters or, or anything like that. I mean, they they can't be physically attacked. And as long as they uh, stay within the, the parameters of the law, they can't be arrested for disturbing the peace. So uh, it's, it's a way of, of saying, okay, you can protest over here, uh, and that's perfectly okay, but we're putting limits on it because uh, you can't interfer- interfere with another totally legitimate action that's going on, in other words, the funeral. Uh, 
and I have to say that uh, I've and I haven't heard much about that. And perhaps that does not happen anymore. That would be nice if it were true. But I've uh, I've read of certain instances in yeah, which we, count- we we don't know if they've they've stopped or the news cycle has just right. moved on to bigger and better things. Right. But it's been gratifying to see. Uh, some of the innovative and creative counter demonstrations that have sometimes been created to completely mask the visibility uh, or audibility of, of those protests. And, uh, and of course, <laughs> the fight goes on. Uh, a last quick question. Your book uh, is not only about the present day and present matters, but certainly traces in rich detail the history of all of this, of how our country has wrestled with the matter of free speech. And at one point you say the early U.S. was far less permissive about words or weapons than it is now. Uh, That's right. So uh, how well did our country uh, emerge or escape from that uh, that lack of permissiveness in our early history? And and to what extent is 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 the legacy of our early history and the way we understood all of this? Well, the, 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 uh, I mean, I, I tend to take historical approaches to to language issues in, in, in the various things that I research. And so I'm particularly interested in where we have come from and how we got from there to here, how we got from yesterday to today in terms of, in this case, language permissiveness, and uh, it's not an easy transition. It's it is a sort of general liberalizing of controls on speech. But at any given point in time, there's always the danger of backsliding. And as as jurists have pointed out at various key times, from the from the 1920s to to today. Uh, this is an ongoing, ongoing issue of defending the right to speak and sort of outlining what's permitted and when, what kinds of speech stray across that bound and violate, uh, violate uh, the law. And, and it's often hard to know, but there are always challenges to our speech. All of the uh, current supporters uh, on the extreme right of free speech measures. If you look at their measures, they are really using the First Amendment to silence other people's speech, to silence minority kinds of speech that they that they disapprove of. And that's scary when the First Amendment attacks itself. Uh, and, and so you have the threat of the First Amendment Absolutists saying you can say whatever you want as long as you insult the right people. You start insulting the wrong people. You say something nasty about Elon Musk on Twitter, and he'll ban you <laughs> if he even notices it. But, uh, and and you know there there you have the example of the free speech absolutist who actually you know is, is not is not an absolutist at all. Well, you have raised all kinds of intriguing questions and are getting us, I think, uh, through your book to contemplate the whole nature of free speech, why it is important, why it is under attack, the ways in which it is uh, un- under threat. And, uh, and, and if nothing else, your book really helps us uh, 
not take for granted uh, this this right granted to us by the Constitution, and you also help us understand the nature of of what that right of free speech really is and what it's all about. Your book, again, is You Can Always Say What You Want, The Paradox of Free Speech, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Professor Dennis Barron, thank you so much for giving the world this important book, and thank you for being my guest today on The Morning Show. I was really honored to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg.